We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to Overnight America with Ryan Recker on KMOX. Sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts, michaelsflooringoutlet.com. It's that time of night, you can't stay up tight. So come and join the people and I'm feeling all right here on old. Oh, yeah. Wow. Well, here we are. Welcome back. We got one more hour, and I wanted to play Kevin Clean's whole other story, which I'll do here in a moment. I see this now trending on social media. Joe Biden's dogs, he has two German shepherds, which apparently he was letting freely roam the White House. That may seem like an issue, right? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of staff, personnel, things like that, just to have the dogs have free reign. Might not be the smartest thing, but uh, the dogs have now been removed from the White House because of aggressive behavior and biting. So the two German shepherds belonging to President Joe Biden and First Lady Jill Biden have been removed. They go back to the house in Delaware because of a biting incident, among other things. So reportedly, uh, this happened. Hmm, it doesn't exactly say when it happened. I think CNN put a report out. But yeah. This also goes back to some of the other issues they had with the dog. Remember when Joe Biden during the election said he was getting out of the shower and he like pulled the dog's tail and he slipped and he broke his foot or something weird, some weird convoluted story that he gave. All of, all of this is just so weird with the dogs. I got to say, I guess if you're pulling the dog's tail all the time, maybe that's a, a reason why it's acting a little aggressive. Maybe it's, it has to do with the way you've treated it. But either way. That's a story that everyone's talking about, and people are upset because they don't like the idea of anyone saying anything bad about Joe Biden's dogs. I think it's more a reflection of the owners. <laughs> I think we just have to agree with that. But that's trending, and I'm sure you'll be able to see more of those stories uh, pop up on social media. All right. I, I wanted to play Kevin Clean's whole other story, and this just seems fitting because he did a story on dogs. Now, I, I haven't actually listened to this yet. It's titled Dog People. But it's a perfect fit, I think, with what's breaking out of the White House. At least I hope. Now, I hope that it uh, is a fit. We'll find out together. Doing a feature on dogs. 
<laughs> this woman was jogging along with her adopted bull terrier mix. Oh, I love it. She just, she's always there to run with me, cuddle with Very me. outspoken. Oh, yeah. How you describe her personality? Um, I'd say she's adventurous. This man has a thoroughbred husky. He likes to play with him in the snow. Uh, I spent a lot of time in Colorado. Uh, I always wanted a dog that I could ski with. Uh, so I take her skiing in Colorado about uh, three or four months out of the year. And what does she do when you're zooming down the slopes? She jumps down behind me. Um, we hike up or we skin up on, on skins on the bottom of our skis, and she skis down right behind me. So this is a skiing companion and a regular dog, too. Skiing companion and regular dog, too. You got it. This woman also has a husky and says he's good company. Both my kids are out of the house and everything, and now it's like like amazing company. It's like you a, ever tell your dog your troubles? Yeah. Does, does he listen? Therapist, therapist. Yeah, yeah. Does he make any response? Yeah, I mean, like, uh, like I say, if you're sad or if it's raining or snowing, uh, he doesn't care. He needs to go out. He makes you move and go out, and and that helps you. This man has a deaf dog, a Dalmatian mix, but he still carries on conversations with him. You know, and it's funny, too. I, I talk to him all the time, even though he's deaf. What do you say to him? I, it's just like, you know, if he's like, he doesn't like UPS trucks. If he's parking a UPS truck, I'll say, blue, stop, come on. And he's still parking. I keep thinking, okay, he's deaf, <laughs> you, know, he, you know, and I give him the sign, come on. Yeah. I mean, do you ever ask him, like, deep questions, like, should I sell the AT&T stock? Or no, no, no. Some people go so far as to have two dogs. This man has two yellow labs, and their personalities are distinct. This one is, uh, he's a male, so he's got kind of a typical, more typical male personality. He's more high energy, uh, just fearless, kind of goofball, where she's, uh, you know, a little less energy maybe, but and a little more scared maybe, but a sweetheart. It's a good thing to have a dog, someone to walk with, someone to talk with, and someone with their own personality. With a whole other story, I'm Kevin Killeen. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> it fits perfect with the dog bark. Hopefully, if you're listening to this in the house right now, and the dog heard that, hopefully the dog did not start barking and wake up a family member. That would not be a good thing. Uh, I should have gave a dog warning. It seems like whenever a dog hears another dog barking, they're more inclined to start barking. And thus the chain reaction begins, which could be a dangerous thing. All right. So uh, we're going to take a break. And afterwards, when we come back, our friend Rich Rubino, who we talked to on Mondays, he's the author of American Politics on the Rocks, polita-geek.com. We're going to talk to him about Andrew Cuomo and what's going on with his approval ratings are just in the tank. If I had to do a sound effect of Andrew Cuomo as we speak. We'll also talk about debt. Senator Roy Blunt. Uh, we'll talk about political comebacks, things like that. All in the next couple of segments on Overnight America KMOX. Listening to KMOX has never been easier. Siri, play KMOX. He's the author of American Politics on the Rocks. We catch up with him on Mondays. Rich Rubino, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks, Ryan. Well, I was um, I was spending some time this weekend, and I was feeling a little under the weather yesterday, so I spent oh. a little bit more time looking at social media, different things that are going on. And you know what I realized is that I could read articles for Sunday, 
And then by the time I revisit them on Monday, everything's changed. So it doesn't even matter. <laughs> I don't, I, why even bother looking at news on days you don't work? I don't know. But I wanted to talk to you about a few different things. And we heard in the top of the hour news about Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, and all the different problems that he's having. More women have come forward. There's more people in the state legislature, Democrats and Republicans, both asking him to resign. He's saying he's not going to resign. And really, altogether, he is not a popular dude in New York right now. No. Um, no, it's so, a, yep, I was going to say, because they do pull this sort of thing. He was riding high last year. People looked at him as being uh, someone that we should look up to. And people were wondering, uh, do we uh, are we running the wrong guy? Should it be Andrew Cuomo running for president, not Joe Biden? So many people loved him that much. Not so much anymore. Oh, it's a, it's absolutely fascinating. This is a guy who had job approval ratings up around 81 percent. And some folks, even when Joe Biden appeared to secure the nomination, so he had made the promise that his vice presidential running mate would be a female. And there were some folks in the Democratic High Command that were saying, despite the fact they have made this promise, we need to have this New York governor. You need to break this promise and put him on the ticket. And you need to put him on the ticket because this guy is so popular because he can potentially appeal to a broad cross-section of constituencies. He's so popular nationally. Why don't we put him on the ticket? Now, fast forward to 2021, a year later, he has job approval ratings in the mid-30s, and there are calls from members of his own party for him to resign. It's unbelievable. You know those shows in like the 80s and 90s where it's like they they kind of like show you where they are now and they're down on their luck and they, they play this <laughs> yes, like yes. rewind sound. Where did it all go wrong? And then they rewind a year and they, they're like, OK, let's let's go to the start of the story. That's kind of what we're seeing with Andrew Cuomo. Where did it all go wrong? Now, I don't know if this is super unique to him. I know there's some politicians that have imploded, but man, this seems to be a pretty big fall from grace. Well, it's interesting. So you go back in history in terms of some people who have been in similar circumstances. I guess the first one that probably comes to mind most recent is probably Chris Christie. Um, right around 2011, everyone from you know Rush Limbaugh, most of the conservative intelligentsia, after he, had, after he secured the governorship of New Jersey, said that this guy needs to run for president in 2012. Everywhere Chris Christie goes, people are asking him, will you run for president? Will you run for president? Chris Christie says, no, I'm going to run for re-election as governor in a year, and two years. And he said at one point, I don't think I'm even ready to be president. He said, this is not my time. But the fact of the matter is, if he had actually garnered the Republican nomination, if he had ran that year, I think there's a good chance that he actually would have won the Republican nomination to take on Barack Obama that year. Now, fast forward a couple of years later. So he's thinking he's seriously thinking about running again in 20 for president in 2016. So he needs to get reelected. So in 2013, he's running for reelection. And part of his reelection strategy is to get as many Democrats to support him in his gubernatorial election. So he could then go to the electorate in 2016 and say, look at how many governors, how many mayors, how many local officials supported me. This means that I essentially by 2016 that I can be a Republican, the Republican nominee that can secure support from Democrats. Um, George W. Bush did this in 1998. He got the support of his Democratic lieutenant governor, Bill Bullock, for example, the Speaker of the House. Um, Pat Leahy, Pat Leahy the, um, all endorsed him, members of the state legislature endorsed him, and he went for, went for president in 2000, and all he talked about was how all these Democrats were endorsing him. So there was one mayor of Fort Lee, New Jersey, who said, no, he's not going to endorse Chris Christie. And as a result, supposedly there was a, um, they closed the lane, um, that they closed the lanes on the um, George Washington Bridge, and eventually what became Bridgegate, so long story short, Chris Christie does decide to run for president in 2015, gets absolutely nowhere, 
And by 2016, when he leaves office, he has a job approval rating at about 19 percent, 19 percent, which used to be about 71 percent. His own lieutenant governor gets swamped trying to succeed him for president, and he really has nowhere to go. So that's probably one precedent. Another one probably actually be Michael Dukakis, believe it or not. So Michael Dukakis in 1986 was reelected as governor of Massachusetts with about 68 percent of the vote, extremely popular, the so-called Massachusetts miracle. By 19, after he was reelected, folks were saying, you need to run for president in 1988. You need to run for president. He does run. He secures the nomination. In the summer of, two, of 1998 in Atlanta, right at the, at the end of the Democratic National Convention, Dukakis was 17 points, according to one poll, 17 points ahead of, the, ahead of incumbent George, Republican Vice President George H.W. Bush. Then the Bush campaign gets a hold of his record in Massachusetts. This is a whole Willie Horton thing. They go after they go after the Massachusetts miracle, the fact that the, the Massachusetts economy teams tends to be somewhat in the doldrums. Um, at least the, at least the productivity that we've seen we saw in eighty six eighty seven tends to be declining. George H W Bush beats him by ten points that year. Um, almost you know, in, even in Massachusetts, toward the end of the campaign, the Republicans were trying to were, were making Dukakis come back to Massachusetts because of what was going on in the economy. And then by 1990, Dukakis basically can't run for re-election as governor of Massachusetts. His job approval is down to is in the 20 is in about 24 percent. Um, he has to raise the sales tax that year. A lot of people are blaming him. Said you were spending time running for president, not paying attention to the store, not minding the store. You were an absentee landlord. 1990, John Silber runs to succeed him as governor of Massachusetts, and the Republican Bill Weld spends an enormous amount of time trying to allegate. Michael Dukakis to John Silver because he's so unpopular. So those were probably two the two closest examples I can probably think of. Well, the Chris Christie thing, the beaches really did not treat him well. So he had that <laughs> no, was it it. slow walk on the beach with uh, President Obama. Not a lot of people like that because he was, you know, walking with Obama during yep. that uh, time Sandy when they were Hook, surveying. Yep. Yeah, some of the different. Uh, oh, I thought that Hurricane was the Sandy, hurricane I mean, that yeah. came through. Yeah. Hurricane and then Sandy, the other yeah. one, the picture of him out on the beach <laughs> on his own property <laughs> when no one was supposed to be out on the beach or whatever it was. Yeah. It, does that is that a lesson for some people? Because it might not just be a political thing. A lot of times, if you're someone that is a really talented college athlete, they always do these surveys, you know, where would you get drafted if you were to enter the draft? How much money would you make? And it's a something that a lot of college athletes are faced with because they wonder, do I wait a year? Do I, you know, maybe get a little bit better? Would it help my draft position? But in the end, almost all of them take the money. They say uh, it's not worth waiting and risking it. Is that true also for politicians? Maybe it's not best for you to wait it. Just you got to go when you got the chance. Yeah, I think so. I think so much like in life is about is about timing in politics. And Chris Christie and Barack Obama are contrasts here because Barack Obama is another example. So Barack Obama, he for him timing was everything. In 2004, he decides he's going to run for a, for the United States Senate seat. Um, Senator Fitzgerald decided one term Republican was retiring, didn't really like the Senate very much. So. Um, Barack Obama gets in the race, and he certainly was not the front runner at the beginning. But then there were all sorts of scandals involving, um, first of all, involving you know Blair Hull in the Democratic primary. Then he gets in the general election. He's supposed to face Jack Ryan, and then Jack Ryan ends up having some problems with his uh, with some form, some problems with his divorce records. So then they the Republicans bring in Alan Keyes of all people from Maryland, mm-hmm. and Alan Keyes ends up running, and and Barack Obama wins an historic victory that year. So then once he gets in. The day after he's the day after he was reelected, 
people automatically start asking him, will you run for president? Partly because he'd given that speech in Boston at the Democratic National Convention, which really introduced himself to the American people. And he said, no. And he said, let me say unequivocally that my only priority is to, is to help the people of Illinois. But then right, right around 2000 and 2006, um, he's so popular to the point that he's going all, he's barnstorming the country, campaigning for Democrats. And he's one of the few people that can actually campaign that can be invited to Bernie Sanders, who's running in Vermont as an independent Democratic Socialist. He can, would invite Barack Obama to campaign. And then Ben Nelson, on the other hand, the most conservative Democrat, invites him, to, invites him to campaign for Nebraska, the only national Democrat popular enough to go out and campaign for him. So as a result, folks like Harry Reid, Chuck Schumer... Um, said, we're not going to endorse you necessarily because Hillary Clinton was obviously the establishment candidate, but they said, we really urge you to get into this race. We need, we need you to get in this race. We need another voice. We need an alternative. So Barack Obama, after being reluctant at the beginning and talking, giving, talking about how there's no chance, unequivocal, decides, you know what, I'm going to get into this race. And it takes off. Um, you know, it, it does take off, and he did it right at the right time. He lands up actually winning the nomination, winning the presidency. It was a time that people wanted somebody untainted by Washington. The fact that he had opposed the Iraq war when Hillary Clinton, John Edwards, Chris Dodd, um, and uh, Joe Biden had all voted for the resolution. Barack Obama giving a speech in Chicago warning against the war, saying essentially, I'm not opposed to all wars. I'm opposed to dumb wars. He becomes the de facto establishment sort of um, anti-war candidate and wins the nomination. But think, for example, for a second, what if Barack Obama had not run in 2008? What if, say, Hillary Clinton had run the had won the nomination? You know, what if what would Barack Obama's future have been? Would he have waited for? Would he have been in there for 20 years and eventually just been an establishment person in Washington, and then he wouldn't really have that much differentiates him from other from other politicians? Very possible. He did it right at the right time. Um, but I am thinking though of one politician who probably saw timing. And probably did probably you know that was Dan Quayle, back in 1998. Dan Quayle was 41 years old. George H. W. Bush had more establishment candidates, Senator Dareforth being one of them. He picks Dan Quayle out of nowhere. Dan Quayle, a senator from Indiana, he says this is somebody who can appeal to young conservatives. Dan Quayle gets absolutely swamped by the media, becomes extremely unpopular, and you know he tries to run for president himself in 2000. He has to drop out in 1999 after coming in very poorly in the Iowa straw poll. That's somebody that potentially, if he had actually stayed in the Senate and waited for, you know, eight, ten more years, become more seasoned, potentially somebody who could have been a very formidable presidential candidate. who does work both ways, but my advice would be if you can see your timing and, you know, don't try to say, I want to, be, I want to wait, stay there for six, seven, eight more years. People don't necessarily vote on how long you've been there. They don't necessarily vote on experience. They generally vote on ideology, and they generally a lot of it is just frankly human characteristics. Do they like the person, or do they not like the person? In the case of Barack Obama, it was very much likability um, that brought, really brought Barack Obama to where he was. Mm. Just a quick trivia question for you: How do you spell oh. potato? <laughs> well, let's. The, I, will P, I will tell you that you do not put an e at the end, but it's interesting because the card that Dan Quayle had actually there was a misprint on it. So what happened was the student went up there, and the student spelled it potato without the E. And Dan Quayle said, oh, no. And he said, you need to put an E on it. But the actual card was the one that had it misprinted. And it's amazing. You know, it just shows that, you know, for, um, top of mind, you know, it's like they say in real estate, they say, you know, they, it's like in real estate, they call it top of mind. You know, you want to have something right at the top of your mind. It's first, the first thing you say, Dan Quayle, the immediate thing you think of, negative connotations, is that one instance with potato. It's unbelievable.
How do you not think about that first thing? That's all I think about when I think of, because that's everything that he's remembered by today, at least for my generation, because, you know, I, I, for me, I, I didn't vote in that. Uh, it was before my time, but still, I think about that. And it makes me wonder, too, the amount of preparation that goes into any of these different photo ops and it's how just the simplest things can sink someone. It's just really well, I remember a, another interesting one when Karamozi Braun was running for president, if you remember this, um, in 2004, uh, somebody asked her what her college major was, and she said, you know, I don't know. And she said, it might have been what? history or it might have been political science. I don't remember. It turned out was <laughs> political science, but just the fact that somebody was running for president could not literally remember their college major. How does that happen, honestly? <laughs> I don't even know. I understand that sometimes you're not in the right frame of mind, but that's something you would remember. I mean, you spent years, four or five years, whatever it takes to, for a degree or something like that. So real quick, if people wanted to look you up online, where can they find you? Yeah, well, first of all, I think she was just partying, so maybe that was why. A <laughs> <laughs> um, couple places, www.polita-geek.com, or go to Twitter and type in Rich Rubino, Paul, P-O-L, or just go to Facebook and type in Rich and last name R-U-B-I-N-O. Very easy to uh, find you on those things. Now, I do want to talk to you about Roy Blunt, our senator here in Missouri, oh, yeah. and get some of your thoughts on that. So names that have been rumored. There's one pretty high-profile name that uh, keeps coming back up I wanted to get your thoughts on, and maybe we can do that right after the break. Yes, indeed. Rich Rabino, author of American Politics on the Rocks, politica-geek.com. You can find him online. A look at your weather coming up, too, on Overnight America KMOX. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Cardinal Spring Training is underway in Jupiter, Florida. And KMOX's Mike Claiborne is covering it all. Hear his daily reports, mornings and afternoons, and on Cardinal's Open Line. Sponsored in part by Norm's Bargain Barn and Wilkie Windows. On your voice in the St. Louis Cardinals, KMOX. Here we are in Overnight America. Thanks again for hanging out with us with Rich Rubino, author of American Politics on the Rocks, politica-geek.com. And Rich, one of the big news today, our yes. senior uh, senator, I guess, out of Missouri, Senator Roy Blunt, announcing that he's not going to seek re-election. And that's a pretty big deal. 
He's uh, been serving here for a while, a pretty big name. Uh, it looked like there was going to be some competition for that seat. And one of the names that came up originally was the former Missouri governor, Eric Greitens. He came out there and was asked specifically, actually on our sister station, 97.1, if he was considering running for the Senate and maybe challenging Roy Blunt's uh, seat. And he, uh, apparently uh, Eric Greitens said he's not ruling it out. So it looks like that uh, Eric Greitens is at least in considering getting back into Missouri politics. He's already been rumored for other things. He's already put in the paperwork, for example. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Roy Blunt. And maybe the thing that I look at it is that a lot of the old timers are starting to get out of the game. So the ones that have been around for a while, the ones that seem to be the most civil, though they're phasing themselves out because they've been in the office for a long time. And it just brings up what are what seems to be more radical types of uh, politicians in there. I don't know if that just seems to be the natural ebbs and flow. That's how it goes in politics. You know, I think that's absolutely right. One of Trump's, I guess, legacy, I guess, is in Trump to a certain degree. It's just where kind of conservatism, certainly the conservative media have gone, is they want people who are essentially going to be tribunes for the conservative cause first and legislators second and third in many respects. You know, Roy, the people, the folks who are retiring, Richard Shelby, for example, from Alabama, was on the Appropriations Committee, Roy Blunt from Missouri, um, you know, senators like Burr from North Carolina, uh, Senator Toomey from Pennsylvania. They have, they're generally center-right Republicans, generally pretty conservative, but their basic goal is not necessarily to kind of espouse conservative agenda, to go on conservative talk shows, and a kind of, you know, almost like a scorched earth type conservatism. At the end of the day, what they want to do is they're spoils men. And what they want to do is they want to actually bring money and bring largesse to their states. Um, that's why if somebody ever gets in the Appropriations Committee, by the way, there's very little you can do, for example, if you're trying to run for president, because if you're bringing money to your state, that's not actually going to help you nationally. So generally, the people who get on those are the ones that actually want to be United States senators. Whereas the other side, folks like, for example, Ted Cruz, you know, as soon as Ted Cruz got into the Senate in 2013, he basically started running for president for 2016 because I don't think Ted Cruz really saw his job just to kind of be an advocate for a state of Texas. Whereas I think Roy Blunt, he basically saw his job as being somebody who is going to be there for Missouri, who's going to be there in the negotiations. And these folks, I think, like the idea of kind of where the Senate used to be, where the Democrats and Republicans get together and they say, all right, we're going to give you this much money, we're going to give you this much money, your state's going to get this much money. I don't think they like the idea of as soon as you get there, if you're ever recreating, if you're ever disloyal to any sort of a conservative move, there's always this possibility that there's going to be a primary challenge. You're going to be called a rhino or a Republican in name only. I think being part of it, obviously, in, in many respects, and some of these folks, and certainly Senator Shelby, who's in his, who's, you know, 82, for example, it's a lot of it has probably got to do with age as well. But, I mean, I think that um, they just don't see why they would want to be there for another six-year term if they're, if they're not, if, you know, they're going to kind of be secondary to the folks, you know, like Ted Cruz and the folks that are just kind of, um, I think Josh Hawley is another one, by the way, that's kind of a very, it kind of delineates someone like Josh Hawley, you know, as soon as he gets into the United States Senate, there's immediate talk that he's going to run for president. He's not somebody that I think people think is going to be there for 30 years. He's somebody who's using this more or less as a stepping stone, whereas Roy Blunt is somebody who probably never really had much serious views about becoming president. He was probably somebody who more or less wanted to actually be there for a long period of time and actually kind of bring largesse to the state of Missouri. So with him saying that he's no longer going to consider running, then that's a seat that's going to be up here pretty quickly. The big question is, who are some of the names in Missouri that could challenge that seat with Roy Blunt being out? And one name that came up 
was former Governor Eric Reitens. Now, he, though it may be rumored, um, he was someone that stepped down in disgrace from the governor's seat, but he's always someone that kind of kept his uh, lane open just in case. He's already put some things out online. He's put videos out online. So it looks like they're trying to test the water some. Do you think that a disgraced former governor would have a chance at running and winning the nomination or perhaps even becoming a senator in that short of time based on when he was out? I, you know, I do see there being a chance simply because you're talking about a Republican primary and in a Republican primary contemporaneously in 2022, um, it's basically you're talking about people that are going to vote in the Republican primary. Most of them are not necessarily kind of, you know, establishment type Republicans. A lot of them are kind of Trump type Republicans. They want somebody who's going to be in there, who's going to be an ideological soulmate of Donald Trump, someone who kind of hugs Donald Trump, who tethers, who's tethered to Donald Trump. And I think they see the, go- the former governor as somebody who kind of fits that image. They're not necessarily looking at, you know, electability or looking at past sins. I think that he's somebody that, especially if there's seven or eight people running, he's somebody that potentially, I think, could garner the nomination with just getting, you know, 30, 35 percent of the vote. Obviously, if he does win, I think he'd probably be, the, probably be in the most trouble um, in the general election. But that being said, I think he also was probably is probably looking at the political tea leaves and realizes that uh, Missouri is certainly a state that's going more and more Republican. Even um, I think the last time it was even competitive was when Barack Obama lost it, but barely in 2008. He sees where it's going. He sees that there's certainly a, a large vote, particularly in outstate Missouri, as opposed, you know, obviously you're going to have Democrats in St. Louis and Kansas City. Um, but he also sees the fact that, generally speaking, in the first two years, the first that the um, first midterm of a president, the party, generally speaking, loses many seats. Um, so I think he sees that. So he thinks this is actually a seat that he can potentially can retain. But if he does garner the nomination, then, of course, this will certainly be a competitive race. And there will be a lot of moderate voters who I think will probably be um, dis- disaffected by him who might potentially vote for a state for somebody who's kind of a moderate um, I think that probably the dream candidate for Democrats, I don't think it's going to actually happen, is probably Jay Nixon, the former governor, because he was actually elected twice statewide and has name recognition. Um, whether he'd actually want to go back and serve in the United States Senate, I, I mean, he actually want to you know, run another race, which is certainly going to be hard for him. I don't know. I will say that past governors who are popular in their states who tried to run for Senate seats, um, for example, Phil Bredesen in Tennessee, Steve Bullock in Montana, it didn't work out very well for them in states that are kind of inhospitable to their, um, to, to their party anyways. Um, and then, of course, Claire McCaskill would be somebody who would be a very formidable candidate. She's told, she's basically issued a statement on Twitter that she would not be a candidate. I think that there will be some members of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee that are going to try to get her to run simply because she's actually been elected twice, albeit the second time she was elected. She had a very, she was very, um, she was, she was in a very fortuitous circumstance in that there was a very poor candidate that was running against her. Then you have folks like um, Jason Kander, who had run for the Senate last time, although he's probably not going to run this time around. And then you get all the way down to folks like Scott Sifton, who's a state senator who's been elected, who actually defeated a Republican the first time he ran. He comes from a very purple district in Missouri. He'd kind of be almost a second-tier candidate right now because he's somebody who does not have much name recognition. But it's a state that I think this is, the Democrats probably have an outside chance of winning. And if the former governor were to master the nomination, I think that would certainly increase. Yeah, there's a couple of you mentioned the former governor here in Missouri, and I can see him getting hit pretty hard. This is going to be difficult because as a lawyer, he represented the. Oh, yeah. Uh, is it Jim Baker recently? So last the televangelist, year. Yeah. 
yeah for i think he was trying to sell like a, a special cure for covid now anything that it goes against the covid anymore is like a death wish if you want to bring up anything along those lines that's going to be a difficult one to try to get past but i i also wanted to point out here in missouri that we did right before uh more recently um we did have a democrat Ed, that was a senator and it was not that long ago, I thought, is it even possible that the Democrats could take that seat back and at least have one seat here in Missouri like they had just maybe uh, two years ago with Claire McCaskill? Yeah, I mean, she's somebody, certainly, I think that there are a lot of folks that really like what she says when she comes on MSNBC. Um, she's a commentator at MSNBC. She's gotten a lot of national attention. I think she probably would potentially garner a lot of donor money for her um, if she were to run. But the other side of that is she was a pretty formidable candidate the last time around, and she lost partly just because the demographics of the state are very hard for her. Uh, my guess is that she probably will not, that she probably really will not run, even though I think that Chuck Schumer and the Democratic establishment is going to probably put a full throttle effort to say, you know, you have to run. We need somebody to run. Um, we think you're somebody who's going to be very formidable. But my, my, my supposition is that she's probably out of electoral politics for good. You know who's going to be the real winner is this radio station because they're going to be spending a lot of ad dollars when it comes oh, to gosh, the election. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to oh, be getting God, a lot yes. of that. Uh, Rich Rubino joining us here on Overnight America. Talking about dollars, I guess, uh, we saw more money being added to the debt. I'm curious if anything comes to mind when we look at how presidents have handled debt because they keep talking about going all the way back to World War II the last time we saw uh, this type of uh, we're, we're running based on how much money's coming in and how much money's coming out. It's yep. been a long time since we've actually um, have had and tipped the balance that far into the debt side, which is something that's very concerning because it doesn't seem like we're going to be tipping out of it anytime soon if there's going to be more stimulus packages. So I'm curious if any stories come to mind about how presidents have handled the debt in the past. Well, I know Andrew Jackson was actually the last president who actually was debt free. Um, he actually was the last president. Not, when you balance the budget, you're just balance, all that means is essentially there's no deficit, meaning that your expenses and your, that you're, meaning that you're, you have essentially a um, clean account. In, many, in other words, you're spending just as much as you're taking in. But once you balance, actually balance the budget, and if the budget is actually balanced, then you still have all this debt. So when people say, you know, there's $24 trillion, $25 trillion, with the budget were balanced, if they, someone came up with a, with a way to balance the budget tomorrow, the budget would be balanced. There would no longer be any deficit, but you still would have this, you know, elephantine debt. And in many respects, too, there are, sort of, there are sort of accounting measures they use beginning in the Vietnam War, um, where they certainly include certain funds and they don't include other funds. The debt's actually a lot bigger than people actually realize um, that it is. It's just the way that they kind of do it, the way that they're, the way that it's, the way that they're accounting for it. Um, generally speaking, countries have, you know, America, for one, has certainly lived with the debt. It's always become very much a third-tier issue. It's not something a lot of folks think about. Basically, I think that, you know, this certain stimulus package, it's Keynesian economics. Keynesian economics is essentially when you're in a time of economic doldrums, you spend, 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 you deficit spend, and then once you come out of it, and then once you come out of it, then you try to pay down that deficit, and then you try to balance the budget. Um, so meaning that, you know, five or six years from now, you know, or three or four years, whenever we're out of this, essentially, then you try to pay it back. But while you're in that, you try to spend as large as possible. It's interesting in terms of how it's become a political issue. Um, I can think of, you know, the last time, by the way, the budget was actually balanced using the current numbers would have been 
um, the latter years of Bill Clinton. And, you know, Clinton took credit for it. Newt Gingrich and Trent Lott also took credit for it. And if you go back to 2000, the campaign issue was how do you spend the surplus? I mean, imagine having that as an issue today of the deficit. You had Bill Clinton actually speaking at the um, State of the Union saying he will not spend any of it until Social Security is taken care of. There were some that wanted George W. Bush in 2000 campaign on tax cuts. Al Gore said we need that lockbox. We need to protect Social Security, protect Medicare. Um, it's interesting because in 19, it used to be that the Republican Party and Republican presidents were known as the kind of the deficit reduction and debt party. And if you go back to 1960s, 1960s, John F. Kennedy had a tax cut proposal. And the tax cut proposal was opposed by many Republicans, including some of the most conservative Republicans, um, like Barry Goldwater, for example, who said that this is going to put our country in, this is going to increase the debt. They did not actually want tax cuts. And as a matter of fact, when Kennedy died and Johnson became president, he had to negotiate with Harry Byrd, a very conservative uh, Southern Democrat in Virginia, that he would limit the budget, the federal budget to a certain amount in return for support, or at least not opposing, the tax cuts. So tax cuts used to be a Democratic issue. It kind of changed, and eventually by the time Ronald Reagan ran in 1980, he said essentially we're going to balance the budget, we're going to increase defense spending, and we're going to... Um, and we're going to and we're going to raise taxes and we're going to cut taxes rather he did cut taxes he did increase defense spending but the deficit continued to increase and continued to increase to the point under George H W Bush but then George H W Bush when he ran for president in 1988 he said let me tell you something when people come to me and they say and they say I want to raise your taxes I'll say no then they come again and I'm going to say no and then they come a third time I'm going to say read my lips no <laughs> new taxes so we can two years into his presidency um, the deficit explodes, the debt's exploding, and he has, a, he has a forum where he meets with Democrats and Republicans, and he agrees that in order to increase the debt, to decrease the deficit, he's going to go back on that pledge, and he's going to raise taxes. And by 1992, Pat Buchanan's running for president in the Republican primary, saying, you promise, you promise, you promise. General election, Bill Clinton's running, and he's saying, you know, you promise, you're, you, pro you said you promised you were, not gonna, you were not going to raise taxes. He did. Also, Ronald Reagan, by the way, 1982, signed into law. A lot of people don't realize this, what at the time was the largest tax increase in American history because the deficits were so, were so ginormous at the time, and his opposition at the time was folks like Newt Gingrich, um, who called Bob Dole, who supported the Reagan tax uh, increase, a tax, the tax collector of the welfare state. Oh, man. That's a, quite a title. All right. So it's been a while. And you said the last president to see no, it was Andrew Jackson, the last president to have a balanced budget in no national debt. Yeah, you got to remember, a lot of people can conflate debts with deficit. With Bill Clinton, under the last few years of Bill Clinton, there was no deficit, but there was still the debt. In the case of yeah. Andrew Jackson, there was not only no deficit, but there was also no debt. In terms of balanced budget, you also, the last year of Lyndon Johnson, um, after those tax uh, cuts, for example, 1968, uh, there was actually a balanced budget that year. Uh, as well. But once you balance the budget, then you just pay the debt. So balancing the budget is just kind of one precipice to get to the next. Okay, so this actually makes my bad joke even worse now, because I was <laughs> trying to set up a, a bad joke. So is it true that Andrew Jackson called into Dave Ramsey's radio show and screamed, we're debt-free after 
getting rid of the national debt. Okay, so that's yeah, terrible. I, I believe I that was it. I, you know, I don't quick. know. I'd have to listen to the actual recording to, uh, to have a definitive statement <laughs> yeah, on that. Go back to it. Abort mission. I should have done As soon as I would thought of that joke, I said, get out. The big red dot, the big red button right on my desk. I should have hit that thing and said, nope, that joke's out of here. All right, so again, <laughs> if people wanted to look you up online, where can they find you? Yep, just go to Twitter, Rich Rubino, P-O-L, or go to Facebook, Rich, last name, Rubino, R-U-B-I-N-O, or just go to www.polita-geek.com, and you can see my interviews there. American Politics on the Rocks, the book you can look them up. Uh, Rich Rubino, thanks for coming on to Overnight America. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And he joins us on the Bomberito Automotive Group guest line. This is Overnight America KMOX. This is Overnight America, sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts. Michaelsflooringoutlet.com on KMOX. All right. Uh, wrapping things up for the night. We have the replay hours coming up, which I think you'll enjoy. But I just wanted to point out a couple of things. The story at KMOX.com. You read the headline, nine-year-old boy shot and killed in St. Louis. No arrest made as of uh, Sunday night. This happened uh, LaSalle Street near South 7th. And the boy was found gunshot wound transported to the hospital where he died. And I went back to look at some of the different numbers that are being reported. I don't exactly know what number we're at because it's kind of impossible because that odometer continues to tick in the city of St. Louis. It seems to never rest because as soon as you think you got a handle on it, as in what the accurate number is when it comes to homicides in the city of St. Louis, you listen to the newscast and there'll be another one and then there'll be another one. How many kids getting shot and killed? It's just it's just terrible. But the numbers are a reality. And at last look uh, by the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department, March 8th, which was something that they would have posted earlier today, which don't count the stats for through today. There were 33 homicides so far in the year 2021. And I was curious how that stacks up against other years. Keep in mind, we're only eight days in. In this case, the number's even higher because it doesn't add some of the other recent violence that has come down on the streets of St. Louis. At the end of March last year, when we had record homicide of 262 homicides in 2020, at the end of March, we had 33 homicides. So we're eight days into March. We've already passed 33 homicides, knowing what happened today. And we're already past where we were at the end of March of last year. Is it possible we're going to have another terrible summer? Is it possible that whatever trajectory we're on is impossible to turn around at this point? Are we going to surpass 262 homicides? We're on track if you want to just look at the way we were in the past. And it's not slowing down. This is no good. Uh, going back, let's see, end of March in 2019, we were at 33. In 2018, we had 40 at the end of March. So um, very possible for us to get to that marker. And then the rest were right around the same number, 34 in 2017, 35 in 2016, and also 35 in 2015. And over and over and over again, we ask this question, why is this happening? Why is this allowed to happen? Why haven't we done more to take a solid stance against this and support the things that are actually preventing this? And the answer is, I don't know. It's a bad look for St. Louis, self-inflicted, because we continue to allow this. And it's not going to get any better the more progressive we go. 
It's not going to help when you just say, no, we're going to uh, defund the police and allow things to, to happen because, you know what, uh, we're probably going to send psychologists and caseworkers out instead. It's not going to get any better in St. Louis. We know that to be true. And that scares me because when we get a new mayor in, it's not going to bode well. Uh, we got the replay hours coming up. Rabbi Manis Friedman is going to join us. And Mental Health Awareness Month is this month. We spent a full hour talking to the rabbi about some issues about the times we live in today. Very fascinating conversation. Enjoy that. Uh, I'll be back again tomorrow at 8 o'clock. Enjoy the rest of your night. And uh, find me on social media, Ryan Recker Radio on Facebook. Bye. My heart beats with the lonely rain Wishing I could see your face again Change the dial on the radio Find something playing kind of bluesy and slow If things were only like they used to be We'd be lying in love tonight I wish you'd call me need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.